Hello, and thank you for joining us for another episode of This Week in AML. I'm John Byrne, Chair of the AMLRS Advisory Board. And I'm Elliot Berman, our Creative Director. We are excited to welcome you to the This Week in AML podcast, where we explore key news and developments in the global financial crime prevention community. Hi, John. How are you today? I'm good, Elliot. How are you doing? I'm good, too. Um, we're having a nice fall day here in Milwaukee. It's... Uh rains and then it gets sunny and then it rains and then it gets sunny which is pretty much our normal weather so um i'm assuming you saw that ofac and fincen together um issued uh enforcement actions against a company called bitrix inc which uh, they run a um a virtual currency exchange and wallets and a trading platform uh yeah, I did see it, and a couple things come to mind. Uh, one is there's been a lot of uh, coverage in the trade press and certainly certainly the regular press about cryptocurrency and, and all the related risks and benefits and what have you. I think this particular enforcement action does a couple things. It shows something that I think think is changing, but we certainly saw it early on, and that is the failure of some of these exchangers to – hire uh, people that had AML uh, experience. Like, again, I believe they're doing it now and the activity that they looked at ended in December, I believe in December of 2018. So it's been a few years, but I think early on, there was certainly a reticence uh, to deal with compliance in, in our space, um, you know, as opposed to the way it's handled in traditional banks. So I think some some of the enforcement actions that um, points that were called out in the order certainly reflect that. Yes, and uh, I think there have been other, not necessarily exchanges, uh, but other uh, startup finan- startups in the financial services area where it was reasonably uh, clear that the. Uh, focus on compliance at the beginning of the business was totally missing. In fact, sometimes I think there were, there was sort of surprise. It's like, well, no, 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 we're just providing software. You know, we're not really operating a financial services business. So we're not subject to any of that. Um, This, these orders make it clear that um, you need to be thinking about compliance um, from day one in the same way that a, a startup traditional bank would have to. Right. I, and I'm going to see what you know about the OFAC part of this, but on the, uh, on the FinCEN part, a couple things that are so dramatic. One is sort of the, the broader comment that they failed to maintain an effective program. And if you look at who they put in role and that sort of thing, that, that is not consistent, similar, not, not always not happening in the traditional banks. We've had traditional banks called out for not putting the right people in roles. But the one that really jumped out at me was um, they failed to file any suspicious activity reports between February of 2014 and May of 2017, three years. And they also didn't file SARS on a significant number of transactions that Jill mentioned on sanctioned jurisdictions. But the fact that there were no SARS filed at all there's absolutely no way if you're an employee for that organization that you don't realize that that's a, a problem. Yes. And, and you and I talked before we started uh, this conversation, 
about the fact that there is a reference in the FinCEN order that the IRS being the, you know, the um, examination uh, agency for MSVs gave notice of an on-site examination. And before they were able to arrive at the scheduled meeting, suddenly 119 SARS got filed. Right. Yeah. And it's sort of like, I don't know whether they were running around going, do we have some SARS around here? Or whether, you know, they suddenly decided, oh, maybe we do have some transactions we should report. But it was, I, I, don't, I don't mean to laugh about these things, but it was almost uh, comedic, uh, you know, uh, sort of that timing. Oh, you mean, you mean there's some boxes of documents that we failed to give to the Justice Department? Where have I heard that before? But yes, yeah. you're right. Well, you know, it's a theme. Um, so as you mentioned, there were two orders. There was the FinCEN order, which was, I think, gener- it's a civil money penalty order, and it's generally a, a program failure uh, uh, challenge for the company. And there was also an OFAC uh, order, uh, apparent violations of multiple sanction programs. So they, early on, they were doing some basic uh screening against the SDN list, but they were doing no screening for sanctioned jurisdictions. And so using IP addresses um, and related physical addresses, OFAC was able to identify many transactions uh, that were done with counterparties in sanctioned countries. Um, I, I tried to add up the number of uh, specific transactional violations, and I think it's a hundred about 120,000. Um, but uh, I my my arithmetic might have been wrong, or I might not have understood what OFAC was trying to say they were talking about. Um, the total fine is north of uh, I think north of 24 million dollars. Essentially, there was some crediting of one fine against the other, and then a settlement um, to get to a net number, but it's, I mean, that's real money. Uh, Even, you know, uh, unless you're making trillions of dollars, that's real money and, um, and way more than it would have cost to put good compliance in from the beginning. No, that's true. And uh, if you're sitting here listening and you are a traditional bank and thinking, I can't really learn anything from this. uh, I'd say, au contraire, if you look at the enforcement factors uh, in the consent order from uh, FinCEN, they list the factors that are relevant to, to looking at the dollar amount, the size of the penalty. And I think those are always important to reference. And they're, one is the nature and seriousness of the violations. We've already sort of referenced that, including the extent of possible harm to the public. Uh, so that obviously they believe is, is an important uh, because of the high risk nature of the transactions. Pervasiveness of wrongdoing within the institution and as I already mentioned, they had put the, well, I didn't say whom, but the chief executive officer became the AML compliance officer, which in, in no world makes any sense. Uh, and they say the appointment was not commensurate with their risk profile. Uh, and they didn't do an adequate risk assessment. Um, they also said financial gain or other benefit resulting from the violation. This is interesting. They increased their revenue and grew their business without investing in appropriate resources, tools, and personnel to maintain an effective program. Uh, the financial benefit resulting from the violations was more limited after Bittrex paused the opening of new customer accounts in 2017, 
and dedicated more resources to their compliance. Also the presence or absence of prompt effective action to terminate the violations. Um, they did hire in 2017 late a qualified AML compliance officer. Um, so, but they did that fairly late in the game. Um, and then um, the quality and extent of cooperation with FinCEN and other relevant agencies. This was sort of a, a, a positive, I suppose. They said they've been responsive to requests for information throughout the course of the IRS exam and FinCEN's investigation. They waived any defense related to the statute of limitations. So I think this is a good point for anybody that's in a consent order situation. You have to cooperate. And if you don't, it's going to be certainly correctly held against you. Um, so those are all the items that went into the decisioning for FinCEN's part of this. And then obviously you've already referenced what, what OFAC did. I think it's also important to note that um, the acting director, Doss, um, said a few things in the statement released with this, that um, the, the key is that their failures created exposure to high-risk counterparties, including sanctions jurisdictions we've talked about, uh, darknet markets and ransomware attackers, which is interesting given the history of this organization that I think you mentioned to me, uh, the people that created it uh, were cybersecurity experts, at least in that field. Um, DOS also ends the statement by saying they won't hesitate to act when it identifies willful violations of the BSA, which I think it's pretty clear FinCEN does that for a whole host of financial institutions, but it's important to recognize uh, this this nascent in industry. And it looks to me, like I said, they did cooperate. They have put people in roles now. They have made those adjustments. They have added those resources. They still got the fine. Uh, but this, I think, is a good um, sort of a good document to look at to sort of figure out and map. Are you, are you your institution or your client's institution doing the right things? Yeah, I, I agree with you. I'd also, uh, in the OFAC order has aggravating factors and mitigating factors in terms of the penalty calculation. And uh, the mitigating factors are a nice roadmap for uh, ways to respond. You've talked about some of them cooperating, but at, you know, actually once, once the problems are surfaced by the regulators to really start take proactive efforts to correct, uh, improve, uh, not, you know, not just uh, stand with your hands on your hips and try to hold your breath. That's never an effective strategy. So I'm not going to read them because they go on for most of a page. But if you take a look at the OFAC order, which uh, you can find on the, uh, on the Treasury Department website, uh, on page three, there's a long list of mitigating factors of what the company did promptly. The last item in the OFAC order that caught my eye is uh, OFAC, again, uh, encourages a risk-based approach, and we've talked about that in the industry for many years, uh, but, but they, they do enumerate five things <clears throat> that should be, um, that are at what they call at least five essential components of compliance. So this is the stuff you ought to be doing, management commitment. We've certainly talked about that over the years, risk assessment, internal controls, testing and auditing, and training. Now, those are similar, but not in any way identical to the requirements for an effective AML compliance program if you're an FI or an MSB. But it's interesting to see OFAC enumerate, you know, here's the, at the highest level, 
here's the things you ought to be able to put in place and point to um, that are guiding how you're how you are um, complying with or dealing with the challenge of complying with sanction programs. Right. All right. Well, Elliot, uh, everybody should take a look at the order or both orders uh, and map it to your institution. Use it as a training tool. Just want to remind folks, uh, October 27th at one o'clock Eastern time, we're going to be doing the uh, October uh, AML voices. And this is going to be on AMLA. Where are we today? Obviously, there's still a lot to be done with AMLA, but the beneficial ownership regulation is now out. The FinCEN acting director has talked about that and some of the other items that they're working on. Uh, we're going to have a conversation with Megan Hodge from Ally and Dan Stepano from Davis Polk. So uh, if things uh, are released between now and the 27th, we'll clearly cover those as well. Looking for people to join us then and send us your questions. Yes, and you can register at our website um, and we'd encourage you to do that. And we will link to the OFAC and uh, the OFAC order uh, in the posting on our website of uh, today's episode of This Week in AML. John, um, enjoy your time in uh, Hilton Head and uh, drive safely on your way home. Take care, Elliot. Enjoy you, the rest of your week. You too. Bye-bye.